Lord Jesus, we are here to draw attention to you. We thank you for this message of Christmas, for the hope of Christmas, that you are Emmanuel, God, with us, that you have drawn near, that you have pursued us, that your great love is not only pursued us, but it's a sacrificial love. You gave your life for us, Lord Jesus. And so I pray this morning that your word, not the messenger, not, not anything else, but your word would penetrate deep into our hearts today that your Holy Spirit would superintend over this place as you have already been faithful to do in our praise and our worship and our testimony. Lord, continue to draw us deeper into your word this morning. Take it off the page and sink it deep into our hearts. Lord, we need your good news today. And so we come to you by your spirit, to your word. In the name of Jesus we come, our Emmanuel. Amen. Oh, what a great morning. Already a great morning. Our Advent candle and reading this week focuses on the love of God. And I think Tony and Liesel did a great job of leading us in that devotional thought this morning. We, we maybe could have just left it right there this morning. I don't know. Advent is a time to consider. It's a time to meditate on the implications of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel. This meditation should lead us to ponder the wonder and the depths of God's love for us. If we had to sum up the love of God, which we spend our whole lives doing, it would have to be in two images. One of the Christmas manger and the joy of the Christ child on that first Christmas night, and the other of the cross of Christ, the sacrifice for sin on our behalf. Both amplify the love of God for us. Both images, both truths, and both doctrines encompass the love of God for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die for us. So there it is. The love of God. The whole gospel. The whole of God's pursuit for us. So what does it mean that God has come near? What was the question they asked in the video? What if Emmanuel is, how do we define Emmanuel? What was the question they asked? How do we define what if Emmanuel is what it means it is? So today we take a deeper dive into this great truth that God has come near. Emmanuel has come to walk with us. So our study today takes us back into the Old Testament. It's a journey that's not the traditional Christmas passage. You probably won't find this on any Hallmark cards this week. Our journey will take us back some 2,000 years before the birth of Christ to a man named Abram and his wife Sarai. While the story of Abram and Sarai is crucial to the biblical narrative and to the history of salvation, we won't actually stop at their story. We have to go through their story in order to get where we're going. You see, the story of Abraham and Sarah, as they would become known as God gave them new names, their story became heavily entwined with an Egyptian servant girl by the name of Hagar. Unseen and insignificant by any measure, Hagar would go down in the pages of scriptures as one who would testify to another facet of God's abiding presence and pursuing love. 
It's a story within a story, and it holds a powerful illustration of Emmanuel drawing near to us. The young servant girl, Hagar, will show us that God sees and meets with us in the loneliest and the most desperate of places. So come with me, if you will, into the wilderness of ancient Israel. Come with me back 2,000 years to the barren sands of ancient Babylon and modern-day Iraq. It's there we find a, a man by the name of Abram. He was a wealthy man with an extensive reputation. Scripture tells us that he married a young maiden by the name of Sarai. They soon began a journey with all their possessions and their extended family from the Ur of the Chaldeans in Iraq to the land of Canaan. It was on that journey that the living God spoke to Abram. It was quite a message that God gave to Abram. God would bless him. He would make him a great nation and he would bless the nations of the earth through him. An amazing promise from the Almighty God, a promise that would change the whole world forever. Through Abram, the nation of Israel would emerge, and along with Abram, they would be a display case for the glory of God to the whole world. God was about to show his glory through the offspring of Abram. That's in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The promise to Abram is repeated again in Genesis chapter 13 and Genesis chapter 15. The promise is bigger than any person could comprehend. The father of an entire nation, offspring as numerous as the dust of the earth, and he goes on later to say as numerous as the stars in the heavens. That's a big number in case you're wondering. He would have recognition. He would have a role in all the nations of the earth. He'd be blessed by God for the whole world to see. His promise is too much. It's too big to comprehend for all of us. Let's, uh, let's take a moment. I wasn't planning on doing this, but let's, let's take a moment and read Genesis chapter 12 just to hear that promise for us this morning. Genesis chapter 12. We read it often here, but here it is again. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now there's a slight problem as you know the story of Abram and, and Sarai. They had no children. And by custom, one of Abram's servants could be adopted, and they could receive the inheritance of Abram. Abram suggested that possibility as an alternative to God's plan. Look at chapter 15, Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. We'll see it again. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward shall be great. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, now here's the problem. What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. That's the inheritance. I can adopt a servant to become my heir. There it is, right there. Verse 3, 
And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. You have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God assures Abram that he, he need not seek an alternative solution. He doesn't have to look at other alternative plans because what God said he would do, he would do. I will give you an offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven, and even if you're childless today, I will fulfill my promise. Abram clung to the promise of God, but the clock was ticking. Ten years had passed since the original promise. Ten years they were waiting. Abram was nearing 85 years old, and his wife was well beyond the years of, of rearing and raising children. As one author puts it, these were the years of age when everything hurts, and if it doesn't hurt, it doesn't work. Thank Chuck Swindoll for that one. The pleasure of making and bearing children had long left town for this aging couple. Surely they had told people of God's promise, but now 10 years in, they were still, they were likely becoming the butt of a lot of jokes. They were more suited to grandparenting than to parenting. Abram and Sarai had been put in God's waiting room and the door was firmly shut. The promise is there, but the waiting is unending. It's bordering on unbearable. So let's keep going. Plan and a participant. The Apostle Peter said that, that God is not slow in keeping his promise, as some would understand slowness. And on the subject of waiting on God, Billy Graham is quoted as saying, never forget that God is bound by time, isn't bound by time the way we are. We see only the present moment. God sees everything. We see only a part of what he is doing. He sees it all. I can't imagine there being any pressure on Abram and Sarai as we know it. They didn't have microwave ovens and fast food. They didn't have drive through restaurants. They didn't have media shouting at them all day that they, they can and they deserve everything they want and everything they need, and, they, need and they, they can have it now. And yet, even for Abram and Sarai, the problem, the pressure of waiting is overwhelming. Their biological clock wasn't winding down. It had stopped and it had rusted shut. Their own doubts had become the loudest voices in their heads. And God was silent. So I'd like to go into that waiting room with Abram and Sarai and listen in on the conversation of a husband and wife who were desperate to see God move. Turn with me to chapter 16. Genesis 16. Start at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. 
she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Let's stop right there. So what happens? What happens when we're in the waiting room and God doesn't seem to be answering? God has made it clear that this is the way I want you to go. This is the promise I have for you, and it, it doesn't seem to be working out. For 10 years, They've been waiting, and there's no response from God. They got the promise, but there's no response. What's going on? And so what, what do you do? What do you do if you're Abram and Sarai in this situation? Let me, let me walk through a little bit what I see here in this passage, and I think it's, it's pretty true to what we do when we try to make our own plan, when we try to devise our own scheme. We're going we're gonna to help God along, right? Anybody... Has anybody done that before? Thank you, Martha. You're the only hand that went up. Okay. <laughs> okay, here's what happens. You review the problem. You go over it and over it and over it and over it. And, and verse 1 says it. Abram's wife had borne him no children, and they're stuck on that. You review the problem over and over and over again. They had no children. But the promise required a child, required a son. But we don't have a son. And it goes over and over and over. The tape just plays and plays and plays in your head. We don't have a son. So you review the problem. And then, and then you seek a solution. You look around the room. You look around your scenario. You look around your network. You look around your neighborhood. You look around your family. And you start to say, what can I do to make this happen? You seek a solution. And so here's Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid, who's faithfully serving Sarah. And then you look out in the culture around Abram and Sarai, and the culture is, is this is their solution to that. What they're doing, it, there's nothing wrong with it according to the culture. The culture says, look, if your wife can't bear you any children, take one of her servants, take, uh, take somebody else into your house, make her a wife, and then you can have children by her. It's perfectly acceptable. No one would blame them. In fact, we, we, we must emphasize here that everybody would, in fact, encourage them to do this. They were seeking a solution. And then they would cast doubt on God. The Lord, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. The one who gave the promise, the one who said you would have offspring as numerous as the, the dust of the earth, the stars of the heavens, and you don't have a son. You see, the Lord did this to me. The Lord has prevented me from having children. And so we cast doubt on God. The Lord has caused this problem. And then we devise a plan. I'll offer you my servant. You take her, you have a child with her, and then our, the solution will be solved, or the solution will be here for us, the problem solved, and, and we'll help God along the way. And God's promise will be fulfilled. Good idea. Good idea. Now, there's one more dynamic that goes on in the waiting room. 
It's found at the end of verse 2. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram, what does it say? Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. What does that say to us? Just in chapter 15, the Lord came to him and assured him and, and went through a covenant process with him, assured him that I'm going to do this. I said it. God, who does not change, said this is what I'm going to do. And Abram listened to him. And then all of a sudden, after years go by, after they've been in the waiting room for long enough, they devise a plan. And, and the scripture tells us that Abram listened to Sarai. He took his focus off of God. It's amazing to me. He's had direct conversations with God. He's received a huge promise. He's gotten clarification on the promise. Two other, at least two other times that promise was communicated to him with, with clarifications. He had seen God lead him and lead his family. He saw, Abram saw God give him military victories. But in the waiting room, in the crucible, if I may say, in the crucible of the waiting room, he stopped seeking and he stopped listening to God. The desire to find his own way, to listen to other voices, to seek other ways, even to fulfill God's promise was too great. And Abram caved. So I don't know how it all worked. I don't know if they actually had a wedding ceremony for Hagar and Abram. I have a feeling it was a little quicker than that. I'm going to say at a moment's notice, a young Egyptian maiden is brought into Abram and Sarah's scheme. Unaware, unwilling, unable to refuse, she suddenly finds herself on the marriage bed of her mistress's 85-year-old husband. Her role, her role in their plan was simply to provide a child. It was a role that she didn't seek. She didn't ask for it. Hagar was an unwilling participant. So we know how the story goes. Hagar becomes pregnant, and they all lived happily ever after. We know the story. We know that man's plan, our plan, the plan that we develop in the flesh, in the world, doesn't usually end in happily ever after. No, life in the waiting room just turned into life in the crazy room. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me by, be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. In the culture of the day, Hagar's status just leapfrogged over Sarai's status. Child-rearing does that. And Hagar took full advantage. Scripture says she looked with contempt on Sarai. I can only imagine the feelings of, of revenge, 
of superiority, of mockery, of arrogance that now marked their tent, marked their camp. We all know that look of disdain. I think we've all received it. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm willing to guess that we all are capable of casting that look of disdain on other people as well. Sarai responded with contempt of her own, so much so that Hagar had no option but to flee. You can only imagine the desperation, you can only imagine the despair that went into her heart, that went into her thought process, the circumstances that Hagar found herself in. She chose the Negev desert over life with Abraham, with Abraham and Sarah. You see, life in God's waiting room is difficult enough at times. His idea of God's idea of timing and resolution is rarely synchronized with ours. But when we take matters into our own hands, we try to fulfill God's plan without him. We don't consult him. We don't wait on him. We don't capture the time for developing our relationship with him. And then we're surprised that we run into problems. We see it in the home of Abram and Sarai. Once they stopped seeking the voice of the Lord, their home was marked by pride, by jealousy, by anger, revenge, contempt, and a host of other unpleasant realities. And in the wake of it, lives were injured, people were isolated, and they were impacted for generations. And if we were to go into the rest of the story, we'd know that the tension that was in that tent is still going on today. So let's look at a plan redeemed, our third point. You see, we could go on. There's certainly enough, enough in that story of Abram and Sarai to keep us studying and meditating for a long time. I look forward to the day when we can, we can do an extended series on the life of Abraham, the father of faith. But I want to get to the story that's in the story. I want to look at the story that's, that's inside all of this, this crazy. The Egyptian servant girl, Hagar, is moved from obscurity to playing a significant role in the story of Abram and Sarah. Through no fault or planning of her own, she was manipulated into a life story that took her, that caused her to be led, that caused her to be found in the, in the loneliness of the desert to where she ultimately received the embrace of a God who saw her in her desperation. If you know her, you know that the story in her family got so bad, the story in her family situation got so bad that she was forced out into the desert by herself on two different occasions. The first time she fled on her own, and that's in chapter 16. And out in the middle of that desert, before she had her child, she's, I, I want you to understand she's pregnant out in the desert. And if you see the pictures on the slides, that's the Negev Desert. That's where she went. It's not exactly the Holiday Inn Express. God found her and sent her back. The second time, 17 years later, she and her son, Ishmael, were forced out because of the tension between the newborn son, Isaac, and Hagar's son, Ishmael. So I'd like to look at this story within a story. Let's, let's camp here for a little bit. 
Verse 7 of chapter 16 says this, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Berlahai Ber Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Beret. I am probably slaughtering all those words. So don't take my word for that on that. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Make note of this, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him, to Abram. Turn with me if you would. We don't have time to, to go through each of these scenarios, but I would like to read them together today. And we'll take some, some summary thoughts from them. Chapter 21, I'll start at verse 14. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 8 just to lead us into this text a little bit. We're talking now about Isaac. Abram's and Sarah's name, Sarai's name, are now Abraham and Sarah because God changed their name. The child grew and was weaned. This is Isaac, the promised child. Sarah has had her child, and now it's three years later. The child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, Ishmael, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So again, there's that contempt. This time it's from the son to the son. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Let's stop there for a minute. Abraham loved Ishmael. This is not an antagonistic relationship. Abraham loved Ishmael. It was his son. And, and Ishmael is probably around 17 years old at this time. They've had 17 years together. Abraham has poured his life into his son Ishmael. So when, when verse 11 says, and the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son, it means his heart was breaking. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and he sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Abram 
didn't even give her enough to survive. He gave her a few provisions along the way and a, and a, and a, a skin of water. All because Sarah said, he will not share in the inheritance of my son. He couldn't give, her, give him any more. Verse 15, when the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, where she said, let me not look on the death of her child, of the child. You see, when, when I read that passage, it says the child, right? But he's 17 years old. He's a teenager. He's about to perish for lack of water. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and she wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. We'll stop there. You see, in, all of these, in both of these situations, Hagar introduces us to a new name and a new title for God. El-Roi. It's, it's spelled R-O-I, El-Roi, which is what I usually say, but the R is actually silent. El-Roi is how you say it. It means the God who sees, and that's what, that's what Hagar explains. I, this is the God who sees me. In both instances, Hagar is alone. She's without hope. She's cast away from all things familiar and facing a likely death in the wilderness. But look at verse 16, chapter 16, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The Lord found her. The Lord pursued her, even even into the lost and to the last places. We would say that Emmanuel had come near. He came with a message of hope. He came with a message of promise. He would make her son a great nation. He also came to her with a new direction the first time when she was cast out. He came to her with a new direction. In the first case, the first time she was out in the wilderness, the angel of the Lord told her, return to your mistress. And so she obeyed, and she stayed with Abram and Sarai for 17 years. I'm guessing they were pretty tumultuous years. And from her testimony, we now know God as the one who sees us in all of our circumstances. And later, when she was forced away from the camp, when, Abram and, when Abraham and Sarah threw her out of the camp, she wandered into the unforgiving desert until she and her son we're near death from dehydration. I can't begin to imagine the heartache. I can't begin to imagine the anger and the despair that they faced. Ishmael was loved by Abraham, and he's now rejected, thrown out. A relationship that is torn at the very fiber of its being. And though Hagar was not innocent in her contempt, she played the game too, she wasn't innocent. But I think you'll agree with me, she didn't do anything to deserve this fate. She had become part of their selfish plan, and she had done nothing worthy of being cast out into the desert. And yet, and yet, God sees. 
we also see that God hears. The very name Ishmael means God is listening. God hears. In all of her circumstances, Hagar found the foundational truth that God sees us and that he looks after her. Indeed, he did. I, I, I want to read verse 13 again in chapter 16. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I hear, I have seen him who looks after me. He sees and he takes care. So what do we do with this? The story is important for, for a lot of reasons today. But for now, I'd like to emphasize the fact that God sees you. That God hears your cry. You see, no one is exempt from difficult days. No one's exempt from strained relationships. No one's exempt from injustice that, that comes over us. And, and maybe we're the ones that are delivering out the injustice, the broken relationships. All of us have found ourselves in desperate and lonely places. Sometimes it's our own doing, while at other times it's the circumstances of someone else's making. Either way, like Hagar, we find ourselves estranged and lost. But I'm going to say it again. God sees you. It's interesting to me that in Genesis chapter 21, the second time that Hagar was cast out into the desert, as we read in verse 8 of chapter 21, what was the circumstance? You recall? What did, what did uh, Moses write down for us? What was the circumstance of her getting thrown out? It was a party. The child was being, was, they were celebrating the weaning of Isaac. Three years old was the typical length of time that the mother nursed the child. And at the end of three years, when, when the weaning took place, they had a, a great feast. And that's what, that's what Moses wrote down for us. They had a great feast. They had a great feast. You see, a lot of times, and I'm, I'm thinking about this for Christmas, Stress in a relationship or loss or grief is, is accentuated in times of family gatherings. You see, I'm, I'm fortunate to have the hope and the pleasure of a wonderful family gathering for Christmas. On, on Christmas Eve, we'll head over to my brother's house and we'll, we'll enjoy a time. There'll be, there'll be 30 people there. Nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters-in-law and grandpas and grandmas and grandkids and great-grandkids, it'll be a wonderful, wonderful evening. I see Ron and Jan Schmidt sitting up here, and you've got your whole family together. It's so good to see all of you. What a wonderful time of celebration you're going to have as a family. But I'm, 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 I'm ever conscious of the fact that it's not that way for so many who are among us. A Christmas gathering may be non-existent because of family fracture. I know of one family that headed south way before Thanksgiving just so they wouldn't have to be reminded of the brokenness of their family and they wouldn't have to deal with their family. And perhaps you're a single parent this season. Maybe you're working hard to make ends meet. and Maybe you're fearful of encountering old wounds from an old relationship. Perhaps you've suffered loss of some kind. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you 
Maybe you have a wandering child who just won't call home. But I want to say to you this morning, the same God who saw Hagar in the wilderness sees you. Perhaps you're facing an an uncertain future through no fault of your own. God sees you and he sees your future. Perhaps unforeseen circumstances are pressing in on your business or your job. God sees and is moving on your behalf. Perhaps you're facing Christmas alone, wondering why that loved one won't call. God hears the cries of your heart. Oh, we could, we could make a whole long list of takeaways from, from these two stories, these intertwined stories. But let me just offer three things this morning out of the 25 that we could talk about. The one thing that I see here is that we need to keep listening to God. Keep seeking God. Abraham and Sarah got lost in the waiting room, and, and I, I, I'm not the one to stand here and judge that because how many of us could, could, st- could be in the waiting room of God for 10 or 15 or 25 years before the promise is actually fulfilled? And some of you are in that waiting room. But if we learn anything from Sarah and Abraham, we need to learn that we need to keep our thoughts and our hearts and our, our ears and our eyes focused on who God is. We need to keep listening to the voice of God. When, when Genesis 16 says, and Abram listened to Sarai, that's, a, that's a, a, a condemning thought. He has turned his thoughts away from God. When Hagar and Ishmael were nearing death from dehydration, God came near. As they responded to him, God showed them a well of pure water. Did you remember that when we read that? God opened their eyes to see a well of pure water right before them, verse 19 of chapter 21. You see, when our hearts are listening, he will lead us to truth. He will lead us to life. He will lead us to redemption. He will lead us to a new day and a new life. When we keep our focus on our God, our discernment for life increases, our anxiety for life decreases, and I, I believe we avoid a lot of unnecessary damage if we keep our eyes and our thoughts, our, our hearts focused on Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel. Number two, keep obeying. Do what God says to do. In the waiting room, it's easy to connive our plans can I make a strategy in those things that, that aren't centered on God's plan, his invitation, his call? We move away and we say, well, how can I help God? And we begin to make up our own plan. But sometimes, sometimes the waiting involves obedience. I, I put sometimes in there just to put an asterisk in there, but I believe it's all the time. God is asking us for obedience. In the waiting room, God is wanting to deepen our relationship, our dependence on him, and he's wanting us to follow his lead, obedience. Abram and Sarai sought man-made shortcuts to help God. It brought heartache and damage to others that lasted a lifetime and even generations. You see, the world can offer reasonable-sounding alternatives and solutions, but we need to stay fixed on God's ways. Hagar was told to return to Sarai. I can't imagine anything more difficult. She just fled there because the tension, the heat, the brokenness, the woundedness, the contempt was so deep and so thick she couldn't take it anymore. And now the angel of the Lord says, I want you to turn around. 
and I want you to go back there. But Hagar did it. Hagar did it, and I believe God blessed her because of it. And the third one, keep anchored in the word and the promises of God. God gave Abram three times his promise and the clarification of the promise. Three times he gave it to him. How many of us would long to hear God with an audible voice say, here's the way, walk in it? Abram had that, and yet he still saw it his own way. But our word for us today is to keep ourselves anchored in the word of God and in the promises of God. You see, circumstances change, but we change. God never changes. When he says something, when he makes a promise, it will come true. What he says he will do and what he has promised in your life, he will see it through. What, the good work that he has begun in your life, he will see it through. Ours is only to wait and to obey. When I think about point number two, keep obeying, I, I, uh, as the worship team comes forward to close our time together. I wonder, I wonder what would have happened if repentance, you see, 2 Peter 3.9 says God's, God's not slow like we think he's slow, but he's waiting patiently for us to come in repentance to find salvation. I wonder what it had, would have been like if this story had been written in such a way as to say, and Abram and Sarai recognized that they had made up their own plan and they went back to God and sought forgiveness and they repented and they went back to Hagar and they said, we're deeply sorry for the way this has worked out. That doesn't mean that they wouldn't have had to separate from Hagar. It doesn't mean, you see, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that the consequences don't come with us. Sometimes the consequences last a long time. But I wonder what would have happened if the, if the atmosphere went from contempt to repentance. And I wonder in the, in, the, in, the, in the idea of obeying God, when God calls to us, I wonder if in our own lives, and sometimes we get run over by other people through no fault of our own. I don't want to diminish that. But what if our own lives were marked by repentance, complete dependence on God, marked by his forgiveness and our extending that forgiveness to others? What if our days are marked by that? And I wonder if, that couldn't be our prayer this Christmas season. God who sees comes to you in the loneliest and the most desperate of places, and he seeks for you to fall on your knees and worship him and go where he leads you. And if that means restoring a broken relationship, if that means, that means swallowing your pride and, and letting the words come out of your mouth, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I think it'll blow open everything for God's glory. A couple weeks ago, a friend of mine talked to him. Um, he was part of a different church, and uh, over the last few years, he and I have had lunch on a couple of occasions, and he's talked to me about their church situation, and the, the pastor there had been going crazy. He was a little dictator, and he made their life miserable, and they shed a lot of tears by getting run over and trying to manage their way through that situation, keeping their eyes focused on God, but getting hurt at every corner. A couple weeks ago, he came to me and he said, 
He said, Mike, I want you to know that that pastor came back to me recently. And he said, I'm sorry. I realize that I ran you over and that I thought I was really something to the whole church and I, and I did all I could to, to damage the church. It was all well-intentioned, but I, I ran you over. And I asked my friend, "Did he now was that just a general apology? Or what, was he aiming it at you? Was he recognizing what he did in your life? Yes, he did. It was very specific. So if it's in your if it's in your power, if it's in your circumstance, let repentance and forgiveness flow through your life this holiday season. And if you're spending time alone, if, if your family is not there for whatever reason, I want you to know the name of God today is not only Emmanuel, it's Eloi, the God who sees. and He sees you. Stand with me and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the hope, the hope of Christmas, the hope of the incarnation, the hope that you bring to us as Emmanuel, the hope that you bring to us as Eloi, the God who sees. Lord, in all of our circumstances represented in this room, I pray, Lord Jesus, for your healing balm. I pray for your, 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 your abiding presence in these coming days. I pray that these coming days, as we mark your birth, incarnation, I pray that you would, you would dwell in our hearts, dwell in our homes, dwell in our gatherings, and may we see you for all that you are. And may we come to you for refuge, for solace, for hope, for life. And may we be agents of that life in these days. You have called us to be your witnesses. May we, Lord, be those who are quick to say, Jesus is the God who sees. Jesus is the God who has come near. May we be a witness and a light for your good news these days. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. On your way rejoicing.